Saturday, Miho and I were planning on, uh, like we had some errands to run, so we were going to go out, and then we decided, hey, what if we go check out this like breakfast place that we like that uh, is in Manhattan Beach, and uh, we get some breakfast there, and then we kind of do our errands. So leave the house, get there around 11 or so, and typically in the morning, <clears throat> you know, I'll have like some coffee in the morning or whatever, maybe do my business and uh, mm. then have the rest of the day. But today we're planning on going to the the restaurant and I was like, I'll get coffee there. And so I don't want to load up on too much coffee because even though I drink decaf, uh, thanks to your advice, th- you know, you can have too much coffee taste, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, and if you're using the decaf coffee to just be a mixer for whatever alcohol you're drinking in the morning, you probably just having like eight of those isn't a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> All of the the knockoff Baileys I'm putting in this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we we get to the restaurant, uh, have a good breakfast. I order the huevos rancheros, uh, which is very good. But again, every time I go, I think maybe I should have gotten the... Uh, pulled pork hash that's so good anyways mm-hmm. we're about to leave and, and Miho's like you know I I kind of want to check out this place to see if I can get some stuff for work and I was like okay well uh, my tummy's grumbling um, I drink coffee so I'm gonna find a restroom and she's like okay well um, you know I I didn't. The thing with me is I don't like to use the restaurant bathroom if I can help it. Okay. Um, just because I don't know. I call it anxiety. I know that people can because I saw people go into the bathroom when I was a kid and then saw when they left. You timing everyone. You were the poop police. Not timing, (laughs) but I know that somebody is in there being like, "That was a that was." no shorter than five minutes, you know, something like that. So, <laughs> and we were like done with the meal. So that also feels disrespectful. <laughs> to, Give it to back like, to them. Right. <clears throat> so I'm like, I'm going to go up here uh, where uh, she had parked the car and go to the square and kind of see if there's like a bathroom up there. And uh, once we got up there, remembered that it, there wasn't one. It was only inside of like a shop. Um, and so anyway, she was like, all right, well, I'll just let you know what store I go to. I was like, okay, I'll see you later. So then I'm like looking, I'm like, I don't want to go into like a coffee shop and I don't want to have to buy anything else. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? You were already oh, okay. in the place where you had paid money. <laughs> I know. <clears throat> this is my main, my, my brain. Um, and so then I'm like, well, look, there's a grocery store called Vaughn's, which is essentially Albertson's right yeah. across the street. So uh, I'll just run in there, you know. Being LA, they typically like lock the bathrooms, um, but it's like, you know, you can ask somebody for the passcode or whatever, but they don't ever have a key. Mm-hmm. And so... I go inside this Vons and there's this guy that was like behind me, but he like sprints into the Vons and is walking fast, walking past every, not looking like mm-hmm. at the produce or anything. So I'm like, 
Okay, I think that guy is going to the bathroom. Then I see the sign for restroom, and he walks past it super fast. I'm like, okay, he's probably getting a prescription. Uh, Maybe he like double parked or something. Okay. Left his kids, left his infant in the car, just wants to hurry up and get the medicine. Right, exactly. And it's a cool day, so the baby's fine. Yeah, it's fine. You don't even have to crack the window. Right. And so, in fact, it would be kind of chilly if you did. Yeah. Uh, And so I go... It's one of those restrooms that has like the the back, you know, you go into like the storage area almost of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's really old school kind of. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I Did go back there. you have to walk and through the plastic flap? They didn't know, have the plastic the flap, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just, just the black doors that kind of flap, like the Western saloon doors. Okay. Uh, and so I go and try to open the bathroom and... It's closed. It's like, you know, I push it down and I'm like, okay, uh, there's no key code. So like to punch in a number. So somebody's in there. Um, don't want to be rude and like knock on the door or anything, you know, because it's, it's private time. Mm-hmm. And they have signs saying like, wait outside of the black doors for your safety or whatever. So I go out there and stand. And then right when I start standing, that same guy that sprinted past me was like, are you in line for the bathroom? I was like, Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. Then five seconds later, two other people walk up and go, is this the line for the bathroom? So now we've got four people mm-hmm. waiting. <laughs> <clears throat> and I think, uh, you know, this is too many people invested in this already. I'm going to go double check the door. I was like, "There's, we got a line going. I'm just yeah. going to make sure the door is locked. Make sure the queen's dead. Tap on the coffin. Right. And so I go uh, up to the door, do the handle again, give it a nudge, and it doesn't open. And so I'm like, yep, somebody's in there. And uh, so then we're just kind of standing there. Everyone's looking at their phones. And a couple minutes goes by, and the fourth person in line, uh, like the last person who came up, he just kind of looks around at all of us and goes, if this takes another 30 seconds, I'm going to think there's a drug user in there. <laughs> and, you know, like, everyone's kind of like, all it's right. It's California. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, this is ridiculous. What What is even going on? What? What? How? Who could take this long in the bathroom? Uh, d- does anybody want to get a manager or something? This is This is getting ridiculous. And I turned around, being the one in front, and said, not really. It's a bathroom. And this was enough, though, to kind of nudge the person who is right behind me to be like, okay, let me go see if the door's like, let me okay. make sure. So okay. he walks up, knocks on the door, and he's like, is anybody in here? And he does the handle down and then gives it a hearty shove, which would be uncomfortable if anybody was in there. Turns out doors unlocked. All right. <laughs> egg on my face nobody's in there <laughs> you're just the asshole making everyone wait for the bathroom what right kind of well, weird that social experiment are you doing come into play in a second <laughs> so so the guy looks like you know frustrated like that it was unlocked and i was i just said you know go ahead like you discovered it was unlocked um <clears throat> my mistake like after you and so he's like are you sure I'm like yeah just go and so he goes into the bathroom and so we're standing there and the guy fourth in line, who's now third in line, uh, says, what? 
the door was unlocked the whole time? What what kind of dumbass doesn't check a door? Who who is it that's such an idiot that they don't know how to figure out a door's unlocked? What what kind of moron who who do we need to be mad at about this? And I turned around and said, Well, that was me. I checked the door and it seemed locked. I didn't want to push too hard in case someone was in there. Uh, so I'm sorry, but it was actually unlocked. My mistake. And he's like, but what kind of dumbass doesn't know how to open a door? And so I turned further around and said, that was me. I tried to open the door. It didn't seem to open. So that's why we were waiting. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, like staring at me. Then I like just start to turn and I'm wearing a mask and he goes, and you cover your face in shame. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, excuse me? Turned all the way around and he's like, it's a joke. It's a joke. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And so then the, the guy in the, like in between us who is feeling awkward at this point, he was like, you know, it doesn't matter. The guy's already in the bathroom, so (laughs) it's fine. And I was just like, that's ridiculous. Like, what are you even talking about to the guy that's last in line? So then I turned back around and still waiting for like 25 seconds, 30 seconds. And I decide I got time. So I turned back around and said, why don't you explain to me how that's a joke? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, he goes, you don't have to find it funny. I was like, I don't. But why don't you go ahead and tell me? How is that funny? What's the punchline? Where is that a joke? And he said, I, I, it's, 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 you know, because you don't, don't worry about it. You don't have to find it funny. And I'm like, I don't find it funny, but you need to explain to me how that's a joke. Mm-hmm. And he's just like stumbling over his words. Then the guy comes out of the bathroom. So I go in there, uh, do my business. And then I'm thinking, you know, this guy is very lucky that I'm me because come on, that's a little too much to be saying over a bathroom line. Right. Well, yeah. And so <laughs> I then come out and hold the door open for the guy in the middle. And I go up to the guy again and I said, listen, are you possibly like on the autism spectrum or something? And he's like, I, I'm not going to discuss something like that with you. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Here's some advice. You need to be careful what you say to people in public because you don't know who you're talking to or what they're dealing with or what they would possibly do to you for saying something like that. And he's like, uh, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm like, I'm just giving you advice. Be careful with your words in public because it could be bad for you. And he goes, mm, that sounds vaguely threatening. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I just like said, this is just advice. You should follow it. And then like walked off. So almost threw down an, Ava- an Avon's uh, bathroom line this Saturday. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the Oh
How was your weekend? My, my weekend was fine. I mean, it was just, just a peachy weekend. I didn't have any sort of confrontations whatsoever. Didn't... <laughs> Didn't have to, you know, front up anybody. Didn't rush any football fields. You know, just a nice, peaceful weekend. Peaceful, peaceful time. I don't think I even... Oh, I, I practiced music. I did that for like five hours on Saturday. Oh, that's a long weekend. The long practice. You know, um, uh, you got to rent out the place and you you might as well maximize your time. Right. Oh, you were at a studio? Yeah, yeah. When we get... When we do the big loud practice, we go to the rehearsal place, one of the many re- rehearsal places around town. Um, we, I'd love to pay for a unit that we would have just as our own all the time that we could get loud in, but they are all booked up. Um, I, and I don't know if that's just because there's just a lot of bands playing right now or because like... If you can find one of those spots, it's about half the price of like an apartment <laughs> type of thing. Uh, I don't know if like people are using them as like uh, quasi. Yeah, I'm in a band, but you know, sometimes I crash at my rehearsal space <laughs> type of thing um, as, you know, rents have astronomically soared in the city. Uh, I think there could be maybe a combination of both, but yeah. Is a studio a place a nice place to sleep? Like, is it? Oh yeah, well, like the one that we go to now. Well, when um, back in the day, uh, they weren't nearly as nice. And I guess there's like two companies that bought up a bunch of them, and they're just sort of run them all over the city. Like they're a bunch of old like strip shopping centers and office complexes that um this company bought up and then just instead of renting out to like dentists and other things they just blocked up all the all the units inside of the buildings and made them places for bands to practice Hmm. that's nice of them kind of i mean it's it's a real uh it's a real zero operational effort type of venture where you buy up the place <laughs> and then you set up an online portal for people to rent it out and then it's not like there's people on site all the time to help you out if anything goes bad but i will say yeah. like from from what it what it was like 10 15 years ago to now like 10 15 years ago like all of them were ba- like half the units were always like just different guys selling drugs um which, you know, that can be advantageous if you're in a band and you have your hookup that's right there next door. Um, but, uh, like, now they all are much more sterile places like doctor's offices. Like, no smoking allowed, no vaping allowed, no nothing allowed. They've got cameras everywhere and um, the people will kick you out if they see you uh, smoking or if one of the smoke detectors goes off in the building and Jeez. all type of stuff. But I think also like that the place we go to was right next to our old house in West Dallas that got hit by the tornado. And I think that one strip that the rehearsal space is in got totally messed up by the tornado. And I think they got a bunch of insurance money to fix it up. So that's probably also part of why it looks all refurbished and remodeled on the inside from what it used to be. How are you supposed to make music? I guess they want you to make what? 
Christian country albums or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and then, like, if you have your own small, like, room that you rent out every month, then that's your room. You can do whatever you want inside, not, not you know, sell drugs in it, but you can, like, decorate it however you want inside there, put different lights and whatever um, in it. But for, like, the big rehearsal rooms, they're, like, rooms that are giant sizes so it's not, they're always not great for acoustics especially if it's just like three pieces um it's the the rooms are huge and they have the you know 15 19 foot ceilings because there's an old warehouse part of the building um so i know that like big bands when they come through town um if they have like a couple days off or they're working on stuff they'll rent out those rooms and they'll they're big enough to where you can bring in light rigs and stuff and work out your choreography with your lighting people and all that type of stuff that's pretty wild yeah so um and i and i and i also would think like if you're a band that's trying to showcase something for a record label or a and r or whatever the rooms are set up where they all have like couches and shit in it too so it's like obviously a band could set up on one end of the room and a bunch of exec people could sit on the couches on the other side to be like hmm i wonder if we should sign this band so i bet you people do showcase stuff in there too so what are you uh what were you recording were you just practicing the like nirvana stuff or were you doing yeah yeah we were just practicing like um you know we got 45 songs or whatever so it's just run, going through all the reps and uh making sure you got it you know, you got your whole playbook worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so when you play shows, do you go through all 45 songs? Yeah, like we'll do, you know, we'll do like a three, four hour night and we'll Jeez. split it up into three or three to five sets over the course of the evening. Um, so, yeah, you got to remember a lot. Do you do you do that many in one night? Because like if you were playing once a week, would you do fewer or would you do the same number like are you feeling like you want to get it all out in one show no it's more like uh when you're doing the cover band thing um like the expectation is more that you're the band that is the hired entertainment for the evening so uh, okay. um you know you're playing to the whole whatever clientele would be at the place that you're playing at whereas if it's like your original music you know you're only playing your 40 minute set because you probably don't have enough songs to play 40, four hours worth of music. But also, you're not going to get like 200 people coming to see your original music and you only play a 40 minute set, which is why you got to like get like five bands, four bands to come do a night thing. And then hopefully that draws like 50 people out. And then you can all split, you know, a couple hundred bucks between four bands. Whereas with the cover band deal, it's like, $500 minimum for three hours and then mm -hmm. you just your band gets all <laughs> gets that money so it makes it a little bit more worthwhile for the whole experience mm. man that's tough not like any of us are getting rich off it or anything but I don't know I see that summit ice hoodie <laughs> hey it's, <laughs> it's my birthday present from from my 40th birthday and I was oh, all the really? way back in There's... February so I haven't really gotten to wear it I got to wear it like twice before it got too warm. <laughs> yeah, that, that <laughs> now it got sense. cold again. <laughs> it's it's like yeah. it is the nicest hoodie that I've ever owned. 
it's extra thick like all the all the weaving of the material is from like five different angles it's very it's like really heavy but it also kind of it doesn't feel like it's weighing you down type of hoodie but yeah this is definitely a uh for the upper midwest level hoodie not the normal like almost t-shirt thin hoodies that i'm used to wearing down here all the time yeah it's a fetterman hoodie for sure <laughs> there's a guy at my gym that looks kind of like fetterman yeah he like he he wears like hoodies and he does wear like sweatpants or wind pants but he's like very big tall and bald with like one of those kind of you know lumpy bald heads mm-hmm. and uh head is much smaller in proportion to the rest <laughs> of his body but i doubt fetterman's coming out here to work out yeah yeah probably not he's he doesn't seem like a coastal elite <laughs> no he, he's not he's not going to the beverly hills equinox to <laughs> to, to get <laughs> to get a few miles in on the treadmill no, yeah. Uh, my sister did work for a little bit at the Santa Monica Equinox. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, she said it was awful. Because <laughs> it was just like rich people coming. She did, you know, she takes care of kids mostly. And she did the thing where she was like doing the the kid kind of daycare-ish thing yeah, yeah. for Equinox. Like you're supposed to bring your kid to work out so that you can get a workout in and then whatever. But it was near it's it's near like a shopping center called like Third Street Promenade, which is oh, a great. big outdoor area. So people would just bring their kids and then go shopping for <laughs> it was like a Mother's four Day hours. Out program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like when I was teaching English. That's awesome. Uh, I, I, I envision that, that that Equinox out in California, it's gotta be the place where there's the most guys who have like muscle implants on their body but they go to the gym to like work out but they can't actually lift any of the weight that is implied by the muscle implants that they've gotten through plastic surgery (laughs) so they're always just like light lightly lifting on the machine or just working the bike (laughs) seeing if (laughs) because they don't want to develop those calves too much because those calf implants will just rupture right out of the back of their skin (laughs) i saw a guy with calf implants at the airport once it looks so weird because he he was wearing like uh capri pants yeah you got to show him if you get the implants yeah you know it's like getting a boob job and then always wearing like really thick christmas sweaters like why'd you get the boob job you know (laughs) it's it was so so strange looking because like you know wanted to show him off i think but then was like kind of like you know moving like rocking up on his toes mm-hmm. and zero flexion yeah, you can- <laughs> in the calf. <laughs> you could see the little ripple of the of the silicone bag. <laughs> no, it just looks swollen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that calf implants. It's 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 a weird thing. I don't know. Maybe maybe I know people that have calf implants and they're my friends and they've just never felt secure enough to tell me about it. Maybe I should maybe I should soften my stance. Yeah. <laughs> soften your stance like they've softened their something with like not being able to stand firm. Yeah. You know, there's something there. <laughs> yeah, they got titanium rods put in place of like their Achilles <laughs> tendons so they could never have to sit down. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Zach De La Rocha needs. Yeah, that is just just totally uh, cyborg up his his Achilles. Man, I can't uh. believe it. That that's crazy to find out that after that tour that he had actually tore his Achilles and not just rolled his ankle in Chicago because it was well, like mean, weird. You but- say after the tour, it's it was during. I yeah. mean, it is like didn't they cancel the tour? Yeah, yeah, because that's what happened. Like everyone thought he rolled his ankle, so it'd be like, oh, maybe four six weeks tops. He's old, but he'll be around fine. And like he never was even in just like a walking boot kind of stumbling around the stage. It was nine weeks later and they were still carrying him to a box to sit on the stage. And like, that doesn't seem like a rolled ankle. Does not seem like that's what happens when you roll your ankle. And he was just not getting surgery for that whole time. So they could just do the tour as long as he could before he just had to had to have the surgery. (laughs) That's insane. How, what was the decision process? Because I came in late. Um, I swooped in on the concert. Why was it that uh, you all decided to go to the Wisconsin show, the first show, instead of the Chicago one? Um, so when the tour was originally scheduled before COVID started, um, the first shows were happening in El Paso and Las Cruces, New Mexico. And then they were going to go around and those went on sale first and none of us got tickets to those. Those were very small venues and those went super fast. Um, And so then it was like, well, let's do it in the summer because that was when Wade was also coming with us. And at the time he was a school teacher. So summer was when he was off. Um, And then when we looked up, you know, around where we would like to go in the summertime, like the Alpine Valley show was like the best one to go to. Um, so that's okay. why we did that. And then when everything got canceled and then rescheduled, then Alpine Valley became the first show of the tour and they reorganized a bunch of the other dates around that. Okay. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, that was just crazy that the Chicago show, the next show was when he like tore his Achilles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dude, seeing how much he was jumping around, like he was jumping around like he was a 19 year old kid at that fucking Alpine Valley show, jumping off those giant monitors that were on either side of the stage and stuff. And, and, you know, he could only keep the energy up for like the first four songs where they were just like (laughs) afterwards, they're like, okay, we're just going to kind of walk around slowly now for the rest of the set because we're all tired old men. Except (laughs) the the, adrenaline is gone. You know, I don't know their names that well, but the guy playing bass, yeah, was doing it was jumping over jump rope the entire time, which is like his bit. Yeah, that's his bit, his little skip skip hop. <laughs> but that, I mean, I need to see his calves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, a lot of the time he's wearing, uh, you know, like cargo shorts. But I think he was wearing pants at the Alpine Valley stop. I can't remember. They were he all in their uniforms. A, an A top. Uh, and there was, had a hole in it after a while. Yeah. Which I imagine just got caught on like a strap or something. No, they come like that. They cost $4,000. <laughs> they come pre-torn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Possibly. <clears throat> so, uh, this week I, I had been, I was for some reason, um, on my iTunes app on my phone. And I have my um, 
screen reader up and I was just on the blowout page and my screen reader kept going and it went right to like the review section and I've never like reviewed any of the review section on the blowout feed before. I don't even know. Even though I asked you to on uh, <laughs> the Halloween episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, then like the screen reader, I guess the one that was like second or third was like somebody asking us to do uh, David Bohm and uh, Implicate Order Theory. I was like, yeah, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. Uh, mostly, you know, we kind of did the uh, the whole Heisenberg thing and we did the double slit experiment and then we kind of talked about the EPR paradox and talked about Niels Bohr and then we kind of talked a little bit about Bohm and then we jumped straight to like Everettian quantum mechanics and um uh multi world many worlds theory and parallel universes and then eventually like the full understanding of like quantum field theory from the splits and the cleaving and the wave function that we talked about from Sean Carroll's last book um but you don't really get from you you can't just go straight from Einstein to Everett or from Bohr to Everett even though Everett did upend Niels Bohr's kind of hold on the, especially the British and European side of the quantum uh, mechanics hold. Um, uh, David Bohm kind of played a similar role here in America, um, but I think th some of his stuff, he was, like Einstein, in a very good imagination guy when it came to imagining like a thought experiment that would help him try to understand the order of the universe in in a new way that wouldn't isn't the uh i guess the instinctive way or the intuitive way that we all just experience reality he was able to really create these thought experiments in in ways very similar to einstein and you know, later in um in Bohm's career, he ends up basically living next door to Einstein and he and Einstein uh, become very fast friends and, and colleagues and talking about this stuff, I think because they really connected on this sort of imagination wavelength. <clears throat> but the uh, sort of the ideas that Everett undid from Niels Bohr's tight hold on... Um, on the interpretation of quantum mechanics as basically reality is reality. It's, uh, you know, the, the tiny stuff, it, it just does what it does. We don't need to be fucking worrying about how spooky it is or weird it is. Just accept that it is. And, uh, and then we can keep moving because if, if I have to question any more that uh, the the stuff does weird things that I can't predict, then it invalidates my whole theory of quantum mechanics. Which you get into the that's when we get into like hidden variable theory and EPR paradox. We don't have to go through all of that stuff again. <clears throat> but what Bohm is doing is almost like uh, the guy who's in the room to play devil's advocate with a bunch of scientists who's like, yeah, you guys, you know, 
you all think that you're on the right track, but you're all kind of using the same um, circular logic where you're all basing all of your assumptions on the same foundation. Um, and have you ever considered that maybe the foundation of assumptions that you having is flawed? Has anyone ever thought about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something where um, like it comes up that he's taking a much more philosophical view of quantum mechanics, which isn't to discount his intelligence when it comes to the actual, you know, mathematics and everything like his uh, paper in, was it 1952 or something that he wrote like the plasma mm-hmm. in metals paper, um, which essentially, you know, plasma being like the fourth uh, form of matter that you have. What is it? You have solids, liquids, gas, and then plasma. you have plasma, which is just charged particles. Right. And it's he essentially when we when we talked about plasma, the greatest example of that is just the what the sun is. The sun is just yeah. a ball of plasma. And but if you consider it that it's charged uh particles that flow uh essentially freely, then you can he then sort of imagined and then was able to write and get published this paper that described how in metal there's like a lattice of nuclei and uh i don't know if it's in every circumstance or in only specific ones but the electrons essentially can flow freely between the nuclei and there's like a flow of electrons inside of metal Mm -hmm. um so then technically it is uh plasma um so that you know that's it's interesting because he that's like a good way of viewing how he approaches all of this stuff is like as you were saying a good thinker on all this kind of stuff he's he's able to be like well even though we know metal is a solid is there an extra layer kind of that we're just uh, not considering that we're overlooking because we're just like, well, we know that this is solid, so this is a solid. Mm-hmm. Is there like some uh, another, you know, stratum that's got a little bit more information to it, a little more interesting, and all that kind of stuff? Um, so all of this is his line of thinking is inspired by the fact that you have general relativity and quantum mechanics, two theories that are. Actually, quantum mechanics is kind of like three years earlier than general relativity, even though uh, publishing of general relativity by Einstein, even though general relativity is the thing that everyone runs with. Eventually, you know, 20 years after that, people really start talking about quantum mechanics and the idea becomes, can we make these two theories compatible? Um, Because general relativity really works great for all objects in space, like Anything that's big on the macro scale, it's perfect. We can predict everything. Not just that, general relativity predicted the thing, the existence of black holes and all of these other things to which a lot of people at the time, including Einstein, were like, that can't be real. And then guess what? They were real. Like, it keeps getting proven that, yes, we, we keep trying to break general relativity. And then every time we try to have an observation or experiment to break general relativity, it just comes back and says, yes, it's it's confirmed. These things actually do exist. They do, even in these extreme states, 
even in these in extremely fringe areas of the of the bell curve it all still works until you get into the quantum level and from the quantum interpretation of physics there is a part where it all works great on the infinitesimally small things and then it gets a little bit too big and then that stops working so the ability to make those two things work together was the big mission of science at the time during David Bohm's life, the idea of coming up with a theory of everything. And Bohm, his sort of principal objection to that, not, not a, I wouldn't say that he wanted to throw out the ideas of general relativity or quantum mechanics. Very, very different. He appreciated them very much and thought they were very useful However, his idea was that the reason that they cannot ever connect with each other is because they are both systems that are working from a sub- basically a subjective view of reality. And they can, so they work in their subjective systems. So when you're talking about planets and the curve of space time and gravity and everything, that subjective reality makes uh general relativity work and when you're if you talk about a subjective reality of these tiny little particles that are actually the things that carry information and define what the nature of the big things are that works in that subjective realm but his um interpretation would be the way to find out how all of this works is to figure out what's going on behind the scenes that is projecting this reality that works in these two um, physical models. Very much similar to like what we talked about in our brain episode with the senses and, and seeing and about how like your, your, what you see is a projection of reality that your brain is creating for you. It's not the actual photons. You're not actually seeing the actual things that are there. It is a manifestation. It is a, 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 a dream, an imagination in your head to as closely approximate reality based upon the sensory inputs that you've taken. Um, so what we see is our subjective reality, but it is not the actual nature of reality. And that is basically what Bohm's contention is. And at the time, it's pretty revolutionary um, because the schools of thought in physics are pretty rigid. They're, like we've talked about before, there is a big gatekeeping and elitist sort of um, stranglehold on science and technology and especially um, theoretical planks of science. Um, you have to be on Niels Bohr's, Niels Bohr's team or like you're going to be rejected from the community. So the thought that you could even have an idea that not everything is individualized in a bunch of subatomic particles, the thought that you could even be like, well, maybe the whole thing is interference pattern and waves. Um, that is like, that is, that, that's blasphemy at the time. So it is, he is, uh, revolutionary from from a thought perspective in that sense yeah he's uh the way that you're describing it like you know how our senses work is perfect for describing what he's 
trying to get at because it it comes off very like even I was watching a documentary that people made on him uh, and interviewing different people that would talk to him. And there was somebody that was saying like whenever he would talk, he would just get like wider and wider and wider and wider um you know (laughs) on like the topic and then somebody would ask a question and then he'd like hone back in on the topic and then slowly you know seep back out so he's while uh interesting to listen to and like the few there's only like a few videos for some reason that everybody used (laughs) from him for like all of the videos on youtube um yeah, a There's bunch like, of those you know, like 1970s BBC interview type special things. Those are like the, you know, kind of panel discussions mm-hmm. and like the Dalai Lamas right there. Yeah. <laughs> stuff. Uh, so, and, you know, which for the most part, for as interesting as the thought process was, um, is probably due mostly to the fact that he was like, you know, labeled a communist and everything in like the 50s 60s and 70s so that's why he didn't have probably more interviews or whatever at the time yeah like we talked about that's one of the crazy things that i learned on the biography side because we had talked about um you know the dropping of the atom bomb we talked about the manhattan project and about how like the initial how the FBI and the the United States government didn't really know what to do about classification or top secret information. And it was real like, oh, we got to throw this thing together. We don't know how to really control the information. How do we restrict the data? All that type of stuff. And we talked about how uh, one of the big policies was, well, if we just make every physicist in America... <laughs> an employee of the federal government then we own all of their intellectual information so then that's the way we keep the lid on this let's just hire all of them they're all going to be a part of this manhattan project and we'll make them work in isolation so none of them ever knows what the other one is working on but basically every scientist is going to be on our payroll um however (laughs) bohm was not invited to be part of this panel even though he was like Oppenheimer's number one student at the at the beginning of the Manhattan Project. He was working with him in Berkeley at the college, writing his thesis paper. And they're like, you know who we don't want on this? <laughs> David Bohm, man. We don't want any of that. <laughs> well, join the Communist Party of America. That'll happen to you. Um, yeah, and the documentary is funny because they were like, you know, he was unfairly tarnished and painted as a communist uh, because he, what he really wanted to do was as a student in college, he joined the, the communist party because he really wanted to just discuss Hegel with people. And then he showed up and realized none of them even knew who Hegel was. So he quit after nine months. And then I swear five minutes later in the documentary, they're like, so his his uh, quantum mechanics work started tying into the Russian project and the collectivism and the aspect of how, you know, like the single electron can have freedom. So even though you're part of a collective in a communist regime, you can still have individual freedom. So he's like <laughs> working on quantum mechanics in order to... Uh, metaphorically describe like the benefits of uh you know the russian what do they call it the russian uh uh 
Oh, I forgot what it was called. Attempt or whatever. <laughs> the Russian project. Project. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> And, and that goes back to even like uh, in that restricted data book that I read for um, that podcast we did on the A-bomb, the, um, like there was a broad consensus amongst many of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project that this should not be uh, secret information. If anything, we could probably develop whatever we're trying to develop faster if we all were you know, talking to each other and working in in the same project. But two, this should be a thing that, like all other developments in physics and science, have been uh, open source. The whole world should be in on it because the way that it ends up being a arms race is when all of a sudden people think that they someone has special knowledge to a secret weapon and it's not just general understandings of physics that everyone shares across the globe. How would that have worked out? Like, if if the information was shared with everybody else, okay, so you you may not have had such an arms race uh, on the surface. I feel like you probably still would have. But I wonder if they would have even dropped one. That that's sort of my thought of processing it. If it's if it's if the information is open source, who could, because the idea that even the scientists that were part of it that wanted it open source, one of their reasonings was that, look, we can develop this all we want, but I know that they're doing it too, and they're probably got a, half the people over here are helping the people over there. Uh, so even yeah. if even if we beat them to it, it's only going to be a couple years before they have it too. And then it's going to be adversarial no matter what. So how do we do this to try to avoid the adversarial part as much as we can would be kind of the way to do it. I mean, it's not like uh, all the other technologies and the lots of other technologies in the world that were used in war were not uh, like total general understandings across the globe of how physics worked like everyone knows how to make ships everyone at that point knows how to make planes everyone knows how to make machine guns like it's it doesn't necessarily mean that it stops the conflict from happening but i Mm. wonder if everyone knows what's going on and everyone's all then everyone has like an equal terrified use of it is America way, way more terrified of ever even using one if everyone else is doing it and knows about it? Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Should have like, been. It's not, it's not like America's using nuclear weapons on other countries after Russia also has nuclear weapons. Right. Um, you only well, used it yet. when you were the only ones that had it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um i wonder uh forgot what i was gonna say do, 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 do. anyways yeah it's it's interesting too that his so his work bohm um really like i don't know it was weird because he started essentially getting snubbed out of the quantum mechanics and physics space Mm -hmm. uh, because of this. Like, I think he was still like working at the, I can't remember which university he was at. He bounced around from different universities, but 
even when he was I, even when he didn't get the invite to Manhattan Project, he stayed at Berkeley. He finished his thesis, which they used to help develop the Manhattan Project, and the but he couldn't defend his thesis uh, like a normal PhD student would. PhD student would because his thesis was taken from him under classified <laughs> protocols. So Oppenheimer yeah. was allowed to read the thesis because he had the top classification level of the Manhattan Project and thus then wrote the letter that said, okay, yeah, thesis is good. As the guy from Berkeley, I think that this PhD student at Berkeley should have his PhD. <laughs> and that's how he got it. <laughs> And he like went to work at at Princeton or something. Yeah, that's and, when he went and lived next to Einstein. Was after that was for the Princeton Fellowship. And they, you know, it, I think like it, especially on the website for the documentary, kept describing how Einstein called him like his spiritual counterpart. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. And the and, yeah, uh, yeah, he was he was like a, a pet for a lot of people. It seemed like. I mean, I don't mean that in like a pejorative way, but like it seemed like uh, presidents loved him. He was like the science advisor to presidents, the spiritual advisor to Einstein. And he talked with like uh, Buddhist monks who like he helped them uh, reform their ideas on on uh, on how to not be totally uh devoted devotional to the to the faith aspect and maybe become much more skeptical buddhists and those those types of things yeah it's it started to turn into much more of a he took like the philosophy turn yeah um he ended up going to like uh england for a bit and you know i think he was like Oppenheimer ran into him somewhere and was like, I thought I told you to leave the country. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not safe for you here. Yeah, um, Oppenheimer would know with the with the murdered fiance and all. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's uh, so it it makes sense that he, you know, kind of was like, well, if the scientific community is going to like not accept me because i know he he wrote a paper i believe it was his i can't remember when it was i think it was maybe 57 um he wrote a paper on his own hidden variables theory Mm -hmm. um which at first it was very confusing to me in the documentary because they didn't mention at all (laughs) like einstein's hidden variables theory yeah um and how einstein was arguing against uh bohr and how like what the clash really was they were just like well niels bohr thought this and uh then bohm thought this and so i i don't know if they're trying to give him his moment in the spotlight um or whatever but essentially his hidden variables theory uh which i'm not going to describe perfectly but it's something along the lines of uh particles like you observe particles based off of how the particle interacts with a guiding wave mm-hmm. uh, or I think he called it maybe a pilot wave. Yeah. Essentially um, saying like the wave function is such that the particle will most likely land on this part because there's kind of like this wave that it rides mm. as it's, you know, going through the double slit experiment. Yeah. Um, 
and it's that's driving how it the has wave of all the probabilities the whole time. Right. Yeah. Um, and they like had some some visualizations, and then a few years later, they made like some visualizations, and they were able to like predict where particles landed on the film and all that kind of stuff um, based off of this thing, which the theory has certainly been criticized as like, um, I forget the word they used, but it was, you know, they're trying to fit the theory, like the mathematics or whatever to what he thinks the theory yeah, is. Yeah, it's a so superimposing kind of, super of the theory over the top of the hidden, vari- to figure out what the hidden variable is. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that it's kind of funny because that's like exactly the the whole point of his like philosophy stance right. was <laughs> going against that. But you know, well, yeah, that that's where I think the he he wasn't his um, proposing of a hidden variable was not for the someone needs to find this hidden variable and be precise about yeah. it. His was more of a hypothetical thought experiment, saying like, if I can come up with a theory that relies on a hidden variable and I have these base assumptions, how is it any different than Niels Bohr coming up with a theory that says all particles exist in locality? Like how, basically it was another kind of a, if this is true, then how is it any different than the thing that you guys all believe? So if you were, if you think that my, this idea is not sustainable, in the system, then you all you also have to be skeptical of this current interpretation that you all hold dear. Yeah. And he the what seemed to be interesting was um I think it was Oppenheimer that like convened physicists together because uh Bohm wrote this, I think while he was in England, um, and tried to get it published and uh, possibly did get it published. I'm not sure. But Oppenheimer, I think, convened physicists together to try and find a flaw in his, you know, paper so that they could just refute it. And because it essentially required them to question the theories that they were going off of, they were just like, let's just ignore it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, that seems to be like the turning point where he was very much like no longer a darling of physics um, because all of the physicists were just like, it's dangerous for our careers essentially to entertain this guy. Yeah. And I, I that's the other thing is the way that he thought about stuff, he had to extrapolate the implications of whatever his theory even of quantum mechanics was then he would do the full thought experiment out to all of the other levels of experiential reality whether that is uh philosophy or metaphysics or uh your day-to-day subjective experience of life um even even basic stuff but what that do, what that really did from sort of my analysis of a bunch of his research it's not so much about the quantum mechanics um interpretation of and the implicate order theory that underlies that it's almost more that he was like a father of modern neuroscience in a way like <laughs> because he thought about how 
the wave function worked and because he disagreed with a lot of you know sort of backwards biological thinking of the time of like uh, memory is being stored in a specific spot on the brain or memory is is can information is contained by specific neurons and those neurons hold that memory or in thing you know all this locality in the brain um and he was part of his reasoning for having like this very non-locality um implicate order this order of things that is the reality that is running underneath our subjective experience um meant that your brain could not function in a way that is intuitive to your native experience. Like the, your brain had to be something different. It had to, it had to store information in a different way. And that's where the implicate order theory leads into like holographic theory. And this is still a big part of quantum mechanics and, um, astrophysics as well. Like the idea that, we interpret the universe in this 3D representation of reality when in a um, hologram, um, as all a hologram does is stores a 3D reality in a 2D, in 2D shape. Um, and the other thing of a hologram is when it's contained inside of like a crystal, the interference pattern of the waves of light or waves of electromagnetism, all kinds of electromagnetism, the interference pattern that exists in a hologram, if you take just a tiny piece of the crystal that contains the holographic information, just one little piece, if it has enough of the interference pattern, contains all the information of the whole hologram. Um, and this is true of all holograms. Like, And true, uh, this is also applies to the holographic theory of the universe and how can you store all this information in a place that is essentially flat? Are we, is all of our 3D analysis of reality just a function of the way that our brains interpret reality, but we're really just all 2D pieces of information encoded almost on the surface of a black hole? Like that's a reality that possibly can exist based upon the interpretation of quantum mechanics and and astrophysics. So hold on the the interference pattern would contain all of the information is that just because you would then have if you had enough interference that means that you have enough of the data interacting with each other that you could extrapolate it back out yeah as all of the information Exactly. And the okay. another example of this would be like um like the the other analogy that he gives is a radio broadcast antenna. So like a radio broadcast antenna is broadcasting to everyone and multiple signals are being sent from that. You with your individual radio at your house, you can pick up any one of the any one of the stations at any time. But it doesn't mean that all the information isn't all whizzing through the air that you could pick up. It's all there. Hmm. So the idea okay. is that if you can pick up an, that, if you can capture, if you could capture that electromagnetic interference pattern of waves from a broadcast station, if you could capture a snapshot of it, you could extrapolate back out all of the information from that because you had enough intersecting points that you could just 
back them back out to their origin point. Now there would be noise because there would be parts where uh, just uh, you didn't get it wasn't quite clear enough. But it doesn't mean that you're able to you're not able to understand what the what all of the information was. There will be some noise as you extrapolate it out, but you will still get all the information. Yeah, the way one of the uh, metaphors that he used to describe it, which is like an actual scientific experiment that I've seen done somewhere on YouTube. Uh, maybe I'll find a video about it and post it. That like if you have two glass cylinders uh, and you one is a little bit smaller than the other and then you put a viscous liquid like glycerin in between them, if you put a dot of like carbon-based dye somewhere and it's just a little dot at one point if you rotate the inner cylinder that will pull on the you know glycerin that's closest to it and it will begin to stretch out all of the glycerin uh, which will then stretch out the dot and it will become you know like uh, as thin as a thread wrapped around but interestingly because of the thickness of the dot that you put in there and everything if you rotate it back the way whence it came uh you can make the dot form like a perfect dot like it was at the beginning mm-hmm. um and that's one of those things that he used to describe how there's this i guess subjective reality that we all observe um because we're we're picking out the dot at any specific point the everything that we observe or whatever um, is just the interference pattern of that dot lined up mm-hmm. for us. We Our brains or whatever, which also gets kind of complicated because he thinks brains are the root of issues, problems, thoughts are. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it formed into this perfect interference pattern that we could then see the dot. But that doesn't mean that at every other point in reality forever that that dot wasn't just stretched out it's just the interference pattern didn't work out for us to observe it i guess right um which i like the thinking because it ties into everything coming from the big bang that yeah this sort of wholeness right it's like la paz uh demon right yeah that if you knew where every single particle was and the the what was it velocity Uh, and mass then you could know everything you would be able to see the future because you would know how every single particle interacted it ties in with the deterministic nature of uh the universe because the the big bang go boom and then all particles go and they interact with each other at some point um so you can trace it all back to the beginning and then you could go forward with it it's just that our subjective reality has allowed the interference patterns to match up just enough for us to say that we have a reality i guess right 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 and you know this goes back to like double slit experiment the observer is the thing that causes locality the measurement is the thing that causes locality you force you force a quantum event to happen that forces the wave to localize um and that so 
in his mind, then the implication of that is this implicate order of of the universe. That and the way to really think about this like he did is you have to think of yourself you have to envision the pre-space. It's a non-spatial existent place. It's a place that's not a place. <laughs> and okay. And that in that pre-space, you have way you have the wave f- function, the just the main primary wave function, right? And how we interact and measure and interact with information from that primary wave function causes the explicate space, which is where we all exist, which is basically a subjective version of reality that has an arrow of time, has a space that we can all coexist in to to feel the arrow of time, and then all of the general relativity and stuff works off of that thing. But the only reason that stuff exists is because of our um, how we interpret the underlying reality of nature that's that we can't we can't grab, we can't go there. But it is our everything that manifests is our way of experiencing it but we can't ever actually experience it (laughs) yeah it gets really heady really fast right and and you know it makes sense in the way that we've talked about from the brain standpoint because this is where it really breaks down of like if reality and space-time and all of those things are those are just localities that are created when quantum events happen based upon our subjective experience of observing and measuring the reality that we're surrounded by. So if all of those things are that, um, then there has to be an underlying point of nature that that stuff arises from. And that's why when you think about when we had the baseball episode and we talked about how if you were processing everything in real time, you could never hit a baseball because by the time that you would react to seeing the ball, you know, the ball would have already passed you into the catcher's glove. I've heard on a well-known sports radio station by many people that uh, they actually do see the ball and hit it. (laughs) Um. Yeah, but they, uh, that, that's the main issue is how do they, um, Hi, Miho. <laughs> She's got to go move a bunch of stuff. Cool. Don't don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself, he said. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to be like stretching. <laughs> She'll be stretching. Good. <laughs> Am I bothering? No, no, you're, no, you're perfect. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, so in that experience, and... The other one that rings true to me is also playing music. But basically, in the experience of having this flow state, right, which we talked about yeah. in those, and Bohm uses flow, that like the whole underlying principle of implicate order theory is that there is a constant flow going the whole time that we're not experiencing. We just think we're like somehow locally popped up out of the flow, but actually, 
the flow is what's creating whatever we think is our subjective reality. You can experience the flow state in real life. Um, a baseball player hitting a baseball is part of the flow state because you are drawing on tens of thousands of past experiences that your mind is already primed for. And it's using that to predict the future. And all of that is happening so fast that you really experience it. None of it in the present, <laughs> in the present moment, it just happens. Um, and with musicians, if you're playing a piece with other musicians, everyone is calling upon thousands of hours of experience and rehearsal and memorization but they're doing that to be able to predict what they're going to play next and in sync with other people. So this flow of is, is time always one arrow like general relativity says, or is it a thing that we can, we move back and forth between past and present all of the time and predicting the future. And that creates a, a subjective experience that makes us feel like, now is now, but now is never actually now, and now never actually really exists. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, like he, you know, he was thinking of this all in sort of a quantum mechanics way and philosophical way, and he met like in the '60s this guy uh, Krishnamurti, which was an Indian, essentially philosopher kind of guy, um, and he also thought of things in this way of like there's there's what i don't know who coined it but it was essentially like this wholeness that there was this um completely objective being of everything and then you know our subjective reality is what kind of plucked out of it and mm -hmm. stuff so it's interesting to read more of that but as you know it it was difficult for it to click with me until you mentioned like the music thing and it's not exactly the same but when it comes to like art um it it seems to be it, it makes more sense for me that like especially in my art style where i'm using stencils so it's different uh layers of paint that i spray onto the canvas and I, I post like a ton of the process photos mm -hmm. of it, but I don't know if anybody actually enjoys those. No, they're awesome. Because there's, but you can't see anything, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. None of it makes sense until that final layer, which I always call the detail layer. It's usually black. Yeah. Um, is put on there because it is so, uh, <laughs> it's just blobs of shapes and stuff that don't really seem to coincide with each other at all it's a magic eye poster that does not yet have the the image superimposed underneath <laughs> right <it>. right <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah and um but the thing with my art style is you know that that totally makes sense when you're using stencils so it's cut out you know it's going to be this shape and then you can overlay another shape on it and it'll look just like that um but what's interesting is every painting is like that mm -hmm. it is all layers yep um so that's that's like one of the things that i often do whenever we go and see like art somewhere if i see something that looks cool I will always go up to the canvas and like put my face almost right against it and look at it at an angle 
so I can see if it's just like a photo printed on canvas or if it's an actual piece of artwork. And sometimes they'll throw fake paint on top of it just to try to throw you off. Oh, like uh, put paint, blue paint over the top of a blue sky in a photo. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to make look it and give look it that like little texture depth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, we call it, that in, mixed media. <laughs> <laughs> and what I've, you know, come to really understand is like, the process as a human of looking at all of these layers of paint is a learned process, essentially. Mm-hmm. There's there's a book that um has like some pretty interesting stuff in it. I don't I don't know if I buy into all of it or whatever. Um I know Justin read it uh because I sent it to him and held a gun to his head over Skype. And <laughs> uh it's called uh, The Politics of Design, and it's like a short read. It's like 200 pages, but it's like a paragraph per topic, pretty much. But essentially, there's a section on talking about like art and... Uh, well, okay, back up. The book is talking about how your experience for designing things is not a universal experience, even if you are trying to feel it universally is. Um, there's, you know, if I think it starts out like the first page is like, if you're reading this book, then you're, uh, only in this percentage of people in the world who can read. And then you're this percentage of people who can read English. Okay. 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 And, you know, so you reading this book already means you're not (laughs) a universally, uh, understood human, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And when it comes to like artwork, um, there's there's like a section where there's like some people that they've they did like some social studies with that for some reason or another they don't have like pictograms for anything. They don't really draw pictures or whatever. I'm forgetting the specifics, but they show like a man standing and then they show like an elephant. Uh, in the f- far background, what we would call the background of the image because the elephant's smaller. Mm-hmm. And for most people like us who have learned how to look at pictures, we know they're saying, oh, the elephant's far away. Okay. And that's why it's smaller. But for certain groups of people who don't learn that, they're like, oh, the elephant's just really small. Or the man is really big because <laughs> it's a 2D reality the picture. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you have to learn how to look at art. And it's funny that like that's kind of how his theory seems to work is we're essentially learning how reality works. Bye bye. Can I say Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> she said bye. <laughs> she said bye. <laughs> Um, so it's it's one of those things that you're like it it's I think the language of saying learning how reality works is not the exact correct thing, but that's how it makes sense to me is that we have to like our reality is essentially learned through like our thoughts, but our thoughts can also cause us to 
have so much difficulty in trying to understand that objective underlying truth. Yeah. And the thoughts are tricky with Bohm too, <laughs> because this is where he, yeah. th- in his own mind, he really ran up against it to where he's like, I don't know if this actually can happen, but the implication of this theory, when you really boil it down, um, is that with the way that the holographic wave functions work in your brain, um, the implication would be that there is no causal relationship one way or the other so that that reality creates your thoughts. It's not a one-way causal relationship, which means that if we're all part of one giant system and the nudges that I do to the locality of my system will influence the subatomic nature of the system around me and in other people and also my thoughts and my brain are part of this subatomic wave function then the implication is that my thoughts can change reality it's definitely one of those things where to me i i say like okay well if we're all a hologram then we're just even our thoughts are like a projection of right the you know underlying reality so we cannot interact with it because that's another order uh above or below or whatever you want to use um but this is also why it was difficult to research some of this stuff because he comes up on so many of those like astrology yeah kind yeah of things manifestation and, people get really into just yeah. these sort of uh cherry-picked quotes or things about this theory and they're like, yes, we are all one in the universe, and or God is the hidden variable, and you know, it, it, yeah, yeah. I can if I think about it hard enough, I can manifest myself to be a billionaire. <laughs> it will just show up in my bank account because my thoughts, my perception is reality. When that's not what he's saying, he's saying that we don't really have that level of control. But if we could manipulate the underneath implicate order of things. The, if we could figure out how to have that power to actually manipulate it and use our minds to really be able to manipulate the implicate order to our explicate order, or our subjective reality, then we really could. It is technically possible from from this theory to use my thoughts to manipulate my reality and manipulate other people's reality. But the problem is, is that the system is so fucking huge that the consequences of one change in a in the wave function based upon one person's thought process in the holographic representation of their brain might not have the same impact as a supernova or other things too so yeah. then that all gets weighed against you know the uh, the ultimate power of that thing but it doesn't mean that just like this is Bohm's thing always is like we can't the theory has to be worked out to all of the possibilities of the theory we can't just say this theory is awesome let's just ignore this parts of the theory that make it inconvenient <laughs> which is what Bohr was doing all the time yeah you can pull a train um but it's it's much easier <laughs> to start the engine on it um which could you know pull it in the opposite direction so uh 
Yeah, it's it's you know that's where it starts to sound like um, very you know people describing their philosophy after taking LSD. Yeah, like you know, which is you know I'm not gonna hate on anyone for recognizing that there's like an interconnectedness uh, between people. So that's where it is kind of difficult to. Well, I guess I, I'm not critical of it, but it is like... That's where I, understanding the context is... The contextualizing the time when the ideas are coming around is very important. You know, because you're still just a hundred years from really understanding what stars are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It hadn't been that long to where people are like... It's, it, you're, you're talking only a few decades from being like, oh, there's this this big black ether... <laughs> that surrounds that surrounds the planet and that and then there's these little spots of light that float in the ether you know mm-hmm. so the um going from that sort of more superstitious description of the universe to where we get to this very uh idea of specific locality and things like stars are real things but they're things that exist way far away from us and in between us and that star is nothing <laughs> there's it's just em- empty vacuum of nothing and uh you know in in between even like the planets is just an empty vacuum of nothing uh, and that um that is really turned on its head by quantum mechanics and yet the Bohr interpretation of quantum mechanics really tries to hold on to the fact that no no all of these things are just individual systems unto themselves that are separated by vastness of nothingness. And um, it is uh, the credit to Bohm for being the one that's like, what if it's not a bunch of nothing? What if like it is a series of of billiard balls that are all up against each other in a massive crunch and we just can't see all of the billiard balls, but they're all there. And how those get nudged around or pushed around, like, influence everything about reality. And that creates what we think is gravity and space-time and and all of these things that we can measure with very predictable results. Um, but we just can't so, see all the invisible stuff that's nudging it around that's making it happen. So he was, like, the one of the people coming up with the field theory? Yeah. Okay. Like he, 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 I think one of his early books is just called Quantum Field Theory or Quantum Mechanics and Fields or something like that. Yeah. Which is, um, so how does the Everettian interpretation again tie back into sort of. Right. So Everett is many worlds, parallel universes. What happens is. all the information in the universe is real information. Like, we're not... He doesn't think that we're dealing with some hidden, uninteractable, implicate order of things that is running beneath us that is manifesting reality as we know it. His interpretation from the mathematics is that that all the reality that we can experience and work with, even though we are subjectively measuring it and our eyes and our cameras and our systems have faults because of that subjective nature. 
um, we can devise ways to try to limit that subjective experience as much as possible to get uh, empirical results. And what that tells, what his mathematics basically defines is that it's not that there's some underlying thing and this is our one objective reality that we're all experiencing. What happens is every time there's a quantum event, the <clears throat> wave cleaves in two and that branch keeps going and a new branch forms every single time. And there is enough space in even multiple universes and Hilbert space. And as you, and if you can think of all of the quantum interactions of everything possible in the universe and you add factors of safety to that, and you think about how much space all of these branches must take, there's still plenty of room to have all of that stuff happen. You don't need to have some other place that, that we can't get to in order to have that happen. And that's kind of where quantum mechanics is now, is like this understanding of the branching of the wave. And every branch is a new universe. And we are riding along in our branch, but as the radioactive decay of the molecules in our body happens, like we're branching, you know, whatever, at least 5,000 times a minute or whatever the stat is. I think it was like a second. A second, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But... There's still plenty. There's still plenty of physical space for all of that information to exist. Yeah, I think the so his like hidden variables theory too that they laid on top of like the double slit experiment. Then, um, it's funny because they use like the wave function as the pilot wave for where the particles mm -hmm. go, but. The wave function just means like the probability or whatever. Yeah. Like, so yeah, the probability of the wave splitting also falls along that probability. You know, the particle, the, the wave function for that particle, um, being shot in Nevada showing up in New York is such a low percentage chance that it's just not going to happen. So his hidden variables theory just lays on top of the Everettian theory because it's they're talking about the same probabilities. So it's um while it is like, you know, cool that he was thinking of all these other things, it the Everettian interpretation makes at least for me a lot more sense and I'm kind of a dumb guy when it comes to this. I <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I think a lot of it does come down to like fine-tuned mathematical formulations that show one that it right. is it's plausible or not plausible type type of thing and that and that's kind of what Everett was known for was that he could do the hard he did the hard math and got the result um mm -hmm. and that so and it's not to say that like uh Bohm's ideas are trash or whatever and I think like all of these are existing inside of a, inside of an evolutionary progression of of scientific process, and if anything, Bohm is a credit to the scientific method and a, a hardcore adherent to it, even at a time when it seemed like the orthodox um, interpretations of physics and quantum mechanics um, that had gone on from the 1900s to the 1930s 
had become rigid and kind of resistant to the rigor and um, validation that this that science actually requires. It had his critique of it was that it kind of become we were relying of, on faith for a lot of things, and no yeah. one was doing the science anymore. His, so, but because he has that imagination and that philosophical side and he has to work out everything, not just from, ooh, this works in the quantum state, but he wants to work it out how that implies to everything, all the living things, uh, how all of our interpretations work. I think that he does get um, co-opted quite a bit from New Age and... Uh, kind of woo type of movements and things like that. And it's that's not to say that that's just going... I think that is a thing that is going to continue to happen the more and more that uh, quantum mechanics is drilled down on, the more and more we understand things, the more discoveries that are made. Um, it's just going to be the thing that more people who are either spiritual or religiously motivated are going to try to find validation in those results for whatever their pre-existing bias or their beliefs are. So, you know, you discover, they discover the Higgs boson, and then everyone's like, there's a reason they call it the God particle. Um, you know, and like, oh, the, the Higgs field, that is just the presence of God giving mass to all things. If God wasn't there, you know, nothing would exist. So that's what it got... Uh, what we're call what these stupid scientists are calling the Higgs field is God. Um, that that type of stuff is just going to keep happening. Probably more and more the closer and closer these things get, um, as you know, physics is developed. And that's the other cool thing is like, um, Bohm was around alive at the end of his life, publishing papers at the time at which everyone thought, man, it's just going to be like a year or two from now. And we're going to have it all solved. Like all phys physics is all, we're going to have it all figured out. Just a couple years, man, by 1985, we're going to have it all figured out. Man, by 1987, no more questions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so now we're sitting here in 2022 and uh, we're still like, whoa, we keep proving general relativity right every single time we look at it. We keep making awesome, more and more awesome space telescopes. And every single time we look at a black hole, it's just like, damn it. Fucking Einstein was right again about this shit. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I mean, it reminds me like uh, back when I was Christian and reading the book, Finding Darwin's God. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, the science of it all, like trying to fit your religious perspective into science is you're going to fail <laughs> every time because there's going to be a new discovery or, you know, um, what happens so often you fit your religion into a thing and then they're like, oh, actually that paper wasn't uh, peer reviewed properly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's, you know, thrown <laughs> out, that's not a good result or anything. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, need to have like i don't know i it's funny because the i don't think that you know you should really just rely on like religious stuff but even if you rely on philosophical religions for comfort or whatever um 
I like this scientific approach to it at the very least because it's mostly just saying like you need to understand everything is kind of connected to each other and so you need to not put like yourself above these situations which people claim a lot of religions claim Mm -hmm. but um, actually having the just trying to have the most objective view of reality and then saying like okay well if this is my most objective view of things then how can i um you know do the most good for uh the people around me it's kind of interesting in like a a um panel discussion they were talking about like essentially politics and everything like that and uh saying how humans have caught their thoughts have caused all the problems and then their thoughts are the ones trying to solve the problems but actually cause other problems in addition to it and um competition is one of those problems Mm -hmm. and they said like is competition a weakness and goes it's not a weakness it's a mistake yeah and i think that sums up the philosophical like scientific philosophical perspective that thinking that you should compete against other humans instead of realizing why don't we just work in a system together um you know that seems to be an issue (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's the the main thing when people try to synthesize the science into their religion is uh, or even try to use science as a way that verifies whatever their belief is in some mysticism or superstition or whatever, it doesn't even have to be organized religion, um, is that is primarily a misunderstanding of science. Um, Science, it it is them thinking that science is to an atheist the way that Christianity is, is to a Christian or whatever. Like some, there's some sort of man, I'm, I'm holding faith and belief in, and some sort of body that tells me what the truth is, whereas science is just a process. It's just a methodology of finding truth. And the whole tenet of adhering to that scientific methodology is having rigorous skepticism and continuing to experiment and try over and over and over again to disprove the theories that you thought were you thought were validated in the beginning. You have to constantly be going back and checking that stuff. And at any point in time, if a religion is going to say, well, see, science says my religion's true, you are automatically disqualifying, <clears throat> disqualifying yourself as someone who understands science because that's not what science is there to do. If, if you really want to accept sci- a scientific doctrine into your religion, then you got to get really skeptical about it. And that's what I think was the in his communication with... Um, the leaders of Buddhism over over the latter stages of his life, I do think that was kind of what he was trying to adhere to. Not instead of them saying, "Man, it is all oneness." That's what we've been trying to say for thousands of years. He went and said, "It is all oneness." Because of that, you guys can't think that every rustling in the trees is a signal from God or whatever. You can also have a scientific perspective and a skeptical nature of that and really drill down to find out whatever God is. Don't don't just think it's all of these things. It's you got you have to stay skeptical all the way through it because it because of this wholeness. So I am there is uh, sort of a refreshing take 
from that that I think is unfortunate that um, a bunch of folks uh, have completely bastardized and co-opted in his memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the thing with the documentary that made it feel kind of weird was a lot of people would take this stuff and just have like a lower scientific literacy <laughs> on things like the, you know, not understanding the double slit experiment by saying like, just the act of observing causes it to collapse the wave function. Um, and, you know, not talking about the scientific reasoning that you're shooting a photon or whatever at this electron. And that is why it's causing an interaction between these in order for you to measure it. You have to literally interact with it. Um, you know, it's, uh, Instead, taking it to the extreme of like, so that means that our thoughts are what makes reality. And it's like, no, you're you're interpreting all of these things because the senses are coming into your brain and everything like he he describes like the problems in forget what he even calls it ecology or whatever, which I'm assuming he's talking about like global warming kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a special panel talking about something specifically. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, he was saying like humans think this is an ecological problem when no, like ecology, the environment works perfectly fine on its own. Um, these are all problems caused by human thoughts. And then we think we need to come up with a solution and that causes additional problems to occur that we don't, uh, see happening right away. And so they, the, person leading the panel was like well what would be then say we approached this wholeness mindset um which bohm himself agreed like you can't attain it it's one of those things and then very annoyingly the panel leader was like so is wholeness heaven then yeah. is that god and it's just like can you shut up like <laughs> about any of that please um but he is like if we approach this wholeness mindset then what would our thoughts be? And he described it that the results would be, um, the results we produce would be the results we intend and not those that we don't intend. So it would be harmony, harmony uh, with everything and with the wholeness. And I think that's a good way to, uh, at least for me, have a comfort in this scientific philosophy that there's, you know, do things, um, I guess with purpose kind of mm -hmm. that are good things, you know, and don't just sloppily throw stuff together. Don't just make an atomic bomb because you, you know, want to see what's going to happen and let's just drop it. And, you know, <laughs> we don't want the Russians invading Japan. Don't want to deal with them at the negotiation table. Right. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I think the, that's that's the main point of the whole of the whole of the whole story of his life um, is to provide that type of perspective to to science. And I think that it is the place where you run into the people who are like, well, I mean, I guess if everything is has this deterministic causal relationship from the Big Bang, then I guess I'm the Big Bang. <laughs> and you're like, well, no, 
it's not exactly what the interpretation is saying. I get where you're trying to you're trying to connect the dots. I like you thinking like that, but that's not what we're saying. It's more of you know, and it is a very um, Marxist Hegelian philosophy. Um, you know this this concept of Umwelt or whatever worldview, where it's not just uh, worldview is not a human centric notion. Like uh, a tree has a worldview, uh, the flower that grows in your garden has an, a worldview, the the dog that walks in the alley behind your house has a worldview, and if you agree that they have a worldview, that they have an experience then you should the the next step is for you to be able to take yourself and be able to view the world from their experience like a true empathetic nature but not with like another person like a plant <laughs> and then then you really can start to see the then you really start to feel the interconnectedness and the what he's saying is if you could think like that then Perhaps the decisions that lead towards climate disasters don't happen. If everyone yeah. is thinking from the world is always saying, okay, but what, what does this look like if I'm the plant? Like, what do I, what is, if I'm, if I'm now, now I want to do this decision, but now I'm going to think of it from the perspective of the flowers in my garden. <laughs> what, what do I still do the decision? And now I'm going to think about it from the perspective of like, animals on the other side of the planet will i still do the decision all that type of stuff yeah and uh it's it's nice to know that that was swiftly adopted in the late 80s and <laughs> no that's why we had to knock that berlin wall down so we could oh. get rid of all those ideas <laughs> <laughs> don't you well, understand you know. this is all just about rugged individualism you are your own <laughs> island it's there's no connectedness <laughs> It's survival of the fittest. Kill or be killed. <laughs> Man. Don't you get it? <laughs> I was listening to the Antifada yesterday, and they had a good interview talking with somebody who was describing uh, the beginnings of radical feminism in the 60s and how it like shaped things up to today in feminism and how, you know, today... I guess radical feminists are what turfs and everything. yeah, I don't even know how to think about like is a radical feminist someone who disagrees with uh like whatever the predominant feminist viewpoint is like a radical feminist is like someone who thinks the traditional woman's role in the home is what the role of a female should be no well, that's like the current um kind of radical feminist like but it it got co-opted and pushed uh with actual money from actual governments like in the 80s like and margaret thatcher it was one of the beginning things to help push push it forward that they were instead like no actually uh the thing with feminism is like uh you know what catherine the great she was like a real girl boss and that's kind of what it means to be feminist. And they started <laughs> talking about the individual as opposed to criticizing the power structure, um, which actual feminism does. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was just kind of interesting because that it ties in so well with like all of this stuff that like you should be thinking of things in a certain way, but um, 
because it's profitable <laughs> for things to be slightly tweaked in a, the wrong way. No. Um, then, you know, that causes it to devolve. Yeah. The, and the, the way that we think about everything, we should have a little bit more uh, Bohmian rigor and skepticism in our thought process. And if we think something, you know, really, really steadfastly, about the world, then yeah, go ahead and work that out. Work that out to all of the implications of what that <laughs> of what that belief might be, and maybe maybe you'd find that uh, it's it's something you you might want to change your mind about after you've worked it out into a bunch of different scenarios and laid it over a bunch of other situations. Because sometimes you know, I- ideas that only work in a in a hyper individualized uh, scenario are not up applicable to all other scenarios and maybe you should uh think about think about changing that belief. <laughs> yeah. Well, um I'm shocked at how long we went on this one. We did it. We did a good yeah. job. <laughs> we did. Good on us. Well, thank you um what was it Soylent Pat Green? Yes. For leaving that thank you <laughs> review. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, maybe Josh can talk to Davey about the other thing you mentioned, some psych wave music or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, di- I didn't catch that part. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> me, me and, Ooh, you know, shots fired. Me and Dave, you know, not we're, we're not close right now. Two guys tried to have a music podcast on the same network. One guy won. <laughs> so you you guys be the judge on if I should talk to Dave or not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> ah. uh, all right, man. Until next week. Bye.